Today, we have Gene Mackin, the author of Picasso's Lovers, historical, or, or no, well, historical, how do you pronounce, how do you characterize it, Gene? Uh, is it a woman's fiction, historical fiction, or what, what do you, how do you uh, classify it? It is historical fiction. And first, hi, Steve. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Right. But yeah, it's it's historical fiction. And I do write from a woman's point of view, uh, which is not to say that men can also appreciate it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, you got a subject here, uh, you know, and and one would need to read uh, your book and and give a little more information out of it. Picasso, um, obviously, you know, a very, very uh, dominant figure. But uh, I would say, you know, he probably, his love life may have been as colorful as his art. Would you agree with that? I think the two were so connected that I wouldn't even try to separate them. He, um, yes, he was a great womanizer. Uh, he, he fell in love over and over again, but he also needed women as muses. Uh, he, he was very firm about that when when he took a woman as lover, it was often because he also wanted to paint her. Right. He did not separate the two activities. So much so that, you know, the two times when he was married, his wives would get very um, restless when they realized that he had a new model in his studio because they knew what it meant. Yeah. <laughs> they, they knew that. Now, how did you get into this project, Gene? Because uh, do you, were you at the gallery one day and thought, you know, I want to, how did that work? <laughs> Well, I've, I'm fascinated by art. My husband was an artist. I am such a word person that I can't imagine what what it is like to see the world as a visual place rather than a wordy verbal place. And I'm constantly exploring that to try to get to know it. It's it's another way to be in the world. And I want to be here as many ways as possible. In Picasso, you know, you think of the 20th century and there, there's a brief list of names that pop up. You know, um, Picasso is one of them. I mean, right. I, you could not have had the 20th century without Picasso. I, I know it's, it's sometimes popular to, to downgrade his importance, but I think he was supremely important in art in many ways. And, you know, I wrote two earlier novels that were set in France in similar times. And Picasso made cameo appearances in both of them. Ah. And I started I started to think, well, you obviously like this guy. I think you want to get to know him better and to work with him a little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I suggested it to my editor and my publisher and said, can I write about Picasso? And they said, yes. Well, so I did. <laughs> Gene, your book comes out uh, next, early next year in January. Uh, but you know, you picked a good time, or, or the uh, the time is right. It was the fiftieth anniversary. This year is the fiftieth anniversary of Picasso's death. I know there is exhibits uh, probably all over the world, exhibitions. Uh, not that there aren't anyway, but maybe even more so, uh, given the uh, the celebration of his of his life. Um, now, Picasso, give us a little background. How much research did you have to do? Obviously, you said he made cameo appearances in two previous books. How much did you know or did you have to find out about his life? Well, I, I read probably a dozen biographies. Um, and there was probably a hundred biographies out there. 
I, I, for the facts of his life, I was more or less starting from scratch. I knew a little bit about the work because I've looked at it. I've heard other artists talk about it. I've read articles about the impact and the, you know, behind the scenes stories of the work. But for Picasso himself, I really was almost starting from scratch. And what a life he had. He, he's really, really fascinating character. I mean, even aside from his sometimes iffy relationships with, with women, his relationship to his father, to his mother, to his sisters, to his friends. He he was a very social guy, except towards the last years of his life. And he he saw people as essential to his own life. He wasn't in any way a recluse or a hermit. He needed people as, as friends, as warmth, and also as stimulation for his work. And I really admire that, that he did not close himself off in any way. And in that research and reading those biographies that you did for your book, uh, Picasso's Lovers, um, did that open up a new door for you? I mean, in terms of appreciate, I think you just mentioned you kind of appreciate him. Uh, was that something that you hadn't seen before? I think what I, what I most took away from the biographies was how really related his work and his relationships were. Sorry, his his work and and those relationships with friends and with people could could not be separated. Um, and I also had a new appreciation for how events in his life shaped his work. I mean, we all know Picasso had different periods: the blue period, the rose period, his cubism, and finding the sources and the endings for those periods was fascinating. Like the blue period actually began when Picasso was very young and his best friend, Casa James, had just committed suicide over a love affair gone wrong. And Picasso's work turned very dark and blue as the period suggests because he was really grieving for this friend who was so close to him. And it was followed by the rose period when he fell in love with Fernand Olivier, they had a wonderful affair for a while and he was happy. All of a sudden he's painting these glorious, um, sublime rose pieces that are just full of life. The cubism was a, you know, a rejection of the academic work that had gone before uh, and cubism ended pretty much with World War I, because people started to see Cubism as a Germanic movement, and they mm. did not appreciate it during World War I. Did not appreciate it. And, you know, then came the neoclassical, when uh, Picasso married Olga, the ballet dancer, and had his first child. And all of a sudden, his work, and sudden, I mean, these shifts were leaps, not progressions. Suddenly, there are these neoclassical portraits of voluminous, voluptuous woman with babies on their laps looking serene. The work is just homage to motherhood. It, it, it is, it's just really supreme. So seeing the connections between his life and his work was really, really wonderful to me. I enjoyed that very much. When I was uh, looking online, Jean, uh, you know, obviously you put in uh, Picasso and, and women and, and so forth. And many things come up. There was a Paris Review article that I'll just give you the title, How Picasso Bled the Women in His Life for Art. 
Um, would you, would you, you know, obviously I'm not giving you a chance. You probably read this article, but, um, you know, that would indicate, uh, you know, some exploitation here. Uh, what's your, I mean, you're well aware of this attitude towards Picasso. I, I am. And I decided when I started working on the book that I was writing him from a 1923 mentality, not a 2023 mentality. And I think that article is very one-sided. Um, I Picasso used women as muses, um, and you cannot condemn artists to do that because if you would if you did, you would condemn most of Western art. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, wipe out a whole bunch of stuff. Exactly, exactly. And 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 the women were not coerced. They weren't forced. I don't think they were. I My personal take is they were not exploited. He had a kind of old world gentlemanliness to him. He um I mean, to be graphic, I was talking about this with a friend and she said, there are two types of, of men. One will rip the pants off of you. The other <laughs> charms the pants off. <laughs> Picasso was a charmer and none, none of it was coerced. He was not, I did not see him as predatory. Um, the woman pretty much knew what they were getting into. And by the standards of t 1923, I I do think he treated them very well. He was not known for his fidelity uh, by a long shot. But once again, if you condemn art for that, you're going to lose a whole lot of art. I mean, at some point, we need to separate what artists achieve as artists from the way they live their life. You can't do that completely. You right. can't I would never be able to look at one of Hitler's early works and say, oh, that's pretty decent. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't work completely, but to some extent it does work. Uh, you know, because I'm a writer, my husband was an artist. I've known a lot of artists and writers and they all have private lives. <laughs> sure. And, and interesting ones. And, now, Jean, uh, we're talking with Jean Mackin, the author of Picasso's Lovers. It comes out uh, next year, just January, start off the new year. You've got this uh, novel set in, I think you said the 20s, uh, like 1923, 100 years past. Um, French Riviera would have been pretty, pretty elegant at that point, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, that's probably a... a a pretty good setting for for the novel, which is part part of what you're writing about, isn't it? It is. I was fascinated by Sarah and Gerald Murphy, um, and people have asked me to explain who they were, and I can only say they were the original influencers. Yeah. Um, wealthy, intelligent, charming people who like to hang out with artists, and um, were nice people, really nice people, not the obnoxious rich. <laughs> but when they went to the Riviera, it actually was not all that popular yet. People oh. would go there sometimes in the winter for vacation. Sarah and Gerald Murphy left Paris to go there in the summer, and they began the whole trend of going to the Riviera for the summer. I mean, that they really were the instigators of that. So part parts of it were somewhat sophisticated, but not yet. I mean, the Riviera as a financial enterprise owes so much to the Murphys. I can't believe it. I mean, people followed them down there because the Murphys were there. So they, they began this wonderful trend of let's go to the Riviera. The Riviera itself has this great history because after the Russian Revolution, a lot of Russians who had to leave France, or had to leave Russia, 
quickly ended up in the Riviera working as waiters, as gardeners. So, you know, you, you, your Duke outwork in the garden might well be, you know, a Russian aristocrat who ended up down there. But the <laughs> Riviera itself is, is such a fabulous place to write about. I, you know, I love to travel before COVID. I was, you know, back and forth a lot. And the Riviera is one of my favorites. And especially, you know, what they call a balcon, the town slightly above the Riviera grass, where you can, you know, look around and see these wonderful views. But the air, the weather, the lavender fields, it is a glorious place. You, uh, I bet you like uh, To Catch a Thief, that, that film that Hitchcock did in the 50s. I did very much so. And <laughs> all the movies they made of the Francois Sagan novels, you know, uh, A Certain Smile. Um, yeah, anything said in Riviera is fabulous. Now, uh, Jane, your, your, your novel works through, uh, what would you say, the 20s through the 50s? Uh, in in the span that you cover there with with Picasso's lovers, um, what what made you kind of settle on that? Was that something that uh, you, you worked out, or uh, did that fit sort of um, your story? It it fit what I wanted to do with the story because it's a generational story of mother and daughter, uh-huh. and so I had to get that second generation in with the daughter, and also. My work always has a political angle to it. And what was going on in 53 in this country, of course, was McCarthyism. Right. And I wanted to draw parallels between some of the the trends in France and Italy with Mussolini going on, the the right wing polarized against the left wing, which is, you know, polarization that we have going now, but also the McCarthyism of the 53s, where people were not free to speak their minds, that it was important to me to write about that a bit, I thought. So that's why I chose the year 53, generational, and also for the politics, and as a way to draw parallels between different times in history. I tell you, when you go through some of those uh, historic uh, reflections, you realize History really does repeat itself, or at least we, we see trends that are reoccurring. Uh, as you say, the polarization that we see now in in this country uh, has its, you know, we can see that elsewhere, you know, in the past. Absolutely. And I actually got a little bit sad when I was working on this book because there were moments when, you know, as a, as a writer of historical fiction, one of your goals is to show people something they may not know about the world and about the history that preceded them. And when I was researching this, I was thinking, we really don't learn, do we? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah, too bad that all these lessons go uh, unread or, you know, ignored, whatever. Well, it's it's great talking with you, Jean. Um, you, you got a... Uh, you know, I know we were on Picasso's Lovers, and we don't want to leave that too soon. But I'm guessing you've got another project up your sleeve, um, another artist or another what another historical uh, thought here that uh, you want to share. It, it will it will be historical. It will be an artist because I love to explore art, and more than that, I won't say until I finish the first draft. I'm a little superstitious about it. <laughs> I used I used to teach writing, and I used to always tell my students. Don't tell me what you're going to write. Write it. Because if you tell it, you you, you disperse the energy. 
Right. Um, so, yes. So, yes. About art, probably 20th century. Um, and that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, we look forward to talking to you when that when that becomes known. And in the meantime, it's Picasso's Lovers. Look for it in January of next year. And Gene Mackin, we thank you so much for your time and uh, for exploring the, our world a little bit with us. Thank you, Steve. Great questions. Have a good day. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.